You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom. The kingdom. Yes, it is. Gotta spread the word. It's your no good, Ann Camp. You're listening to the Ann Campaign Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason Dixon line, my play cousin. Right, Reverend Christopher Butler. Well, Chris is not here with us today. He's uh, with his family having a good time, and there's nothing wrong with that. I fully expect that he will be with us next time, uh, next episode. So you're just stuck with me, Justin Gibney. You're going to have to hear my monologues and all that stuff. You just got to survive it again just for one episode. So hopefully we make it through as we expect to see Christopher Butler next episode. But listen to this. If you're anything like me, you had a great weekend of college football. I mean, there were so many great games on this weekend. We had this was week one before that we had this. is I think that's the first time they did just a week zero. But in this week one, there were just some awesome games. First and foremost, my Commodores are two and oh, we'll always take that. We got Wake Forest coming up in this next game. And that's one we need to we need to get. Uh, but if you look at some of these games, man, whether whether it be Ohio State and Notre Dame, Ohio State pulling that off, but not uh, as easily as some might have thought they would have pulled it off. Uh, you had Florida State and LSU, which is a game that goes down to the wire. We saw uh, uh, North Carolina go down to the wire with Appalachian State. One of the best games I saw and the team that I really think made one of the biggest statements uh, was Florida. Florida came in unranked and beat a top 10 top 10 team in Utah uh, and their quarterback seems to be the real deal. Again, you see these uh, SEC teams got off on, I think LSU might've been the only one that lost, but the SEC had a really good weekend and you know, I'm always for that, uh, but you got to give it up. And, you know, I hate to give props uh, to Georgia, but I must say them beating Oregon like they did really made a statement. It really made a statement. And, I'm a little nervous about that defense again. I was hoping that they lost so many guys that they wouldn't be able to dominate in the way that they dominated Saturday. But tougher games are on the way, and we can still keep our fingers crossed. So a lot of good rivalries coming up. This is going to be a really exciting football season. And I'm just I'm just want to give a shout out to all the football fans who are excited about uh about college football really getting started up. So it's gonna be uh fun to watch. You know, we're going to be talking about it a little bit on the Church Politics Podcast, just make, keeping you up to date and, uh, you know, always going back and forth and, and finding reasons uh, to kind of spar with words uh, about some of our favorite rivalries. But I want you to keep that word rivalry uh, in your head because I'm going to address that in a minute. But as before we get into this, you know how we do I always. I want to give a shout out to our sponsor, the Fetzer Institute, for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. Uh, the 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 Church Politics Podcast holds no pun punches. We say what we got to say from an orthodox point of view. And so there's not a whole lot of sponsors that are willing to uh, to go with us on that. But we uh, do maintain integrity and we try to bring the truth in love. And so we appreciate all of you, not just Fetzer, but all of you who support what we're trying to do. 
we got some stuff to talk about. So as always, grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat. Prepare to think like a Christian. So I told you to remember the word rivalry, because when we're talking about college football, when we're talking about sports in general, a lot of what drives the entertainment, a lot of what drives us wanting to see these games are rivalries. It's two teams, two groups of people, two schools who really just don't like one another. For legitimate reasons, not necessarily, but we bo- we all get hyped up in kind of pride for your school or pride for your city or pride for your team. And it creates these rivalries with other cities, other colleges and other teams that really drive our desire to watch these games. Because what we're doing when we watch college football and we watch uh, Florida beat Utah is we're saying that people who went to Florida or people who live in Florida and are Florida fans are now better or have bragging rights over Utah. We beat you. We want you to feel a certain way about that. We're the best. And I think when you look very closely, that's exactly what kind of drives us to watch these sports. Yeah, we like to see the action. We like to see the hits and all that. But when you get really excited about a sporting event, a lot of times what's behind that excitement, what's behind that energy is a rivalry. It's proving a point to someone that you may not like or you might like outside of the sport, but that you really want to show them that you are better, that you're superior in that sport. Now, many of you who have been listening to the Ann campaign for or listening to the Church Politics podcast for some time know that I have something that that's called my, my sports tribalism theorem. That's right. My sports tribalism theorem. If you have not heard the episode where I go deep into my sports tribalism theorem, you need to go back in the archives and you need to listen to that one because it's one of, uh, from what I understand and when I when I go and talk to people, it's one of their favorite episodes that we've had on the Church Politics Podcast. And it doesn't initially have all that much to do with sports, but then it kind of does. And so I'll just give you the short of it, but you need to go back and listen to that episode. My sports tribalism theorem says this. It says that the greatest contribution of sports in society so I do think that sports has a contrib- has has made a contribution to society. I think sports is is healthy for society, right? But that 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 primary contribution or the greatest contribution that sports makes to society is that it allows us to release some of our natural tribalist tribalistic energies. Right? It's something that's fun for us, but we have this kind of natural tribalism where we want to feel better than other people. Uh we want to beat other people for for, uh, you know, irrational, unreasonable reasons. We want to cheer for something just because we want to cheer for it and be better than other people. And sports allows us to do that in a way where we can get it out and not have to do it within more serious matters in society. So what I say is tribalism in sports is good. By all means, be as tribal as you want to be in sports. Obviously, don't hurt anybody or go too far. But as far as talking trash, as far as thinking your team is better and not really being reasonable, not really being informed, do that all day in sports and don't do it in politics. Because part of the problem that we have is people take that tribalism into politics where you really have serious consequences 
And we're just trying to get that tribalistic energy out. But it's not just in politics. There, there's, there's kind of this overlap where sometimes Christians bring that into politics. But we also bring that tribalism into church, which might be even worse. Let's look at some scripture. Philippians uh, chapter two, verse three says this. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit. You see, in the two preceding verses in Philippians chapter two. Paul is talking to the church of Philippi about positive ways that believers should behave towards one another. Now, as always, Paul is urging us to conduct ourselves in a way that's worthy of the gospel, notwithstanding the consequence. I mean, notwithstanding the circumstances. And it's important to note that because Paul says that repeatedly in his epistles. He tells us that the gospel demands that we act a certain way, whether we're being celebrated or whether we're being persecuted. This is unconditional. There are certain things that we must do in certain ways that we must act as Christians, as followers of Christ. That shouldn't be controlled by the circumstance that shouldn't be dictated by what's going on around us in our environment. Again, it's not conditional. And so when he's talking about these ways that we should behave towards one another, he talks a lot about love and unity. He speaks of us having one spirit. Uh, one purpose. And again, showing humility. We know that humility is not thinking too much of ourselves, right? Uh, uh, being willing to lower ourselves to see, to hear, and to value others. Because we certainly can't see, hear, and value others if we're only seeing, hearing, and valuing ourselves. And I think we've probably all been there a time or two uh, in our lives. Now, the church is witness is weak when we're not acting out of love and unity. I think we should all know that. In fact, I would go so far as to say that the church is not the church. The church is not serving its purpose. The church is not serving its function when we've forsaken love and unity. And if you need an example of what love and unity are, if you need an example of what it means to be self-sacrificial for others and to be humble, We know that there is no better example, that there is no more perfect example than that of Jesus Christ. What what, what Paul is describing here and how we should treat others is really just us imitating Christ in our interactions with other believers. A commentary I was reading called this, uh, he he called it self-emptying. Self-emptying seems to be the process of substituting our will for the will of God. It seems to be the process of decentering ourselves and centering God, which then allows us to place the needs of others before our own needs. Now, I know that that thought has become somewhat cliche. We've, we've heard it in church for years. We heard it in different places for years, right? It's hackneyed in our culture. But just because the term is something you heard over and over again doesn't make it any less important. 
It doesn't make it any uh, less necessary or any less commanded through scripture. That's something that we have to do and we have to take seriously. And sometimes we have to renew our understanding of what Paul and what Jesus mean when they say that. Again, Paul starts Philippians chapter two with positive ways we should behave towards each other. He then addresses the approach that Christians should avoid. Right. He said he says, do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourself. Instead of rivalry. Other versions of this scripture say things like selfish ambition, do nothing out of selfish ambition or do nothing out of selfishness. And all these things we know are rooted in pride and therefore they're counter to the humility of Christ. These are ways that we shouldn't approach other people because this is not the way that Jesus approached people or told us to approach people. Now, when we look at these words here, I think the English language is is a bit limited. It's, It's lacking. Because none of those words that I use, whether it's rivalry or uh, selfish conceit or selfishness, none of them by themselves seem to capture what Paul is getting at based on my reading. Okay, he's talking about a type of uh, quarrelsomeness that is rooted in self-seeking and pride. I attack you to puff myself up. Or we attack them to puff ourselves up. The term used here also connotes, the term used here in the Bible also connotes factitiousness, right? Or or the tendency to create factions or rival groups. We always create rival groups. We always create these factions because they serve us. Because they allow us to puff ourselves up at other people's expense. Because we find sort of a protection in these factions when we should find our protection and our identity in Christ. But we tend to do this. And many times that comes with this unhealthy craving for controversy. From what I gather, Paul is telling us to approach other not to approach other Christians with the with the selfish or conceited posture that's aimed at proving that our tribe our culture, our ideology, or our party is superior. In other words, stop picking fights simply to cause strife with those who you disagree with. If your commentary or your actions are meant to show how bad or how stupid or how worthless others are, keep it to yourself. And when we hear about these rivalries, when we hear about this craving for controversy, when we hear about uh, how 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 we shouldn't treat each other in, in, in a way that's really just trying to lift us up. It seems to me that that Paul is doing a pretty good job of describing how Christian Republicans. And Christian Democrats. Treat one another. Is Paul not describing Christian Twitter and Christian Facebook, where we scour our social media feeds, trying to find any phrase, any word 
that be, that can be used to further our narrative against woke Christians, against Theo bros, against progressives or against conservatives. Are we not craving controversy? We seek out controversy to demonstrate our righteousness and their wickedness. We we seek out these controversies to prove ourselves worthy of our tribe and to prove up that others aren't where they need to be or aren't us. We enjoy these rivalries and we get rewarded handsomely by our tribes for initiating these things. And when we initiate these things with the other side, we call ourselves brave. We call ourselves brave for piling on when it didn't really take any moral courage at all to do what we did. We just did it to get props on social media to prove that we were on one side or the other. And as I address this, I'm addressing myself, too. I'm addressing the fact that even the and campaign in, in that we do try to avoid taking one side or another. We try to be on the right side. We try, try to make sure that we're just speaking the truth. We don't always get that perfectly. And so it's something that we need to think about. How do we treat people who are in a different faction than us? How do we uh, perpetuate these these rivalries in a way that's actually taking away from the church, that's actually taking away from the church's public witness. Now, I know what some of y'all are thinking right now. I've been doing this for a while. I know exactly what some of y'all are thinking. Does this mean that I can't correct others when their opinions or their public witness is mistaken or if it's dangerous? Does this mean that I just have to shut up and watch somebody misrepresent the gospel, misrepresent the church and hurt people? Is that what Paul is saying right now? That's not what Paul is saying. That's not what Paul's saying is at all. You guys know that we're supposed to correct error. The issue here is not the correction of error. We can see in Proverbs 27, 17, it says iron sharpens iron and one person sharpens another. We can see in Ephesians uh, chapter four, verse 25, it says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Correcting another believer's error isn't the problem. We got to dig a little bit deeper into what Paul is saying. Paul is really talking about attitudes, motives, intentions. He's not just talking about whether they are right or wrong. He's not really addressing whether uh, the person that's in the other faction is right or wrong. He's addressing your motives, your attitudes and your attitude and what your objective is. Paul seems to me to be addressing the why. Why are you attacking this person or group? What exactly is your objective in attacking this person or group. Now, of course, we will say, I'm doing it to glorify God. I want people to know what the, you know, what, 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 what's really right and wrong. But are we really doing this to glorify God? Or is it some type of one-upsmanship? Is it just a ploy to gain a sense of superiority over another believer? Are we trying to make ourselves feel more important than somebody else? 
The problem here is that we're more so seeking to glorify ourselves and our tribe rather than raising up Christ. If you're correcting somebody really because you're like, hey, that's not what the Bible says. That's not what the gospel is about. And I want to lift up Christ. You'll go about it in a certain way. Right. But what we do is we'll use Christ or we'll use the one or two Christian principles that we've chosen to emphasize. We'll use them as pretext or we'll use them as cover. When we're really just trying to show how terrible the other side is or show people how much better we are than them. Let's all sit back and ask ourselves in a real way. What does it mean to consider the Democrat or Republican Christian that you don't like as more important than yourself? What does it look like? What does it sound like to address them with humility? Does it mean listening without assumptions? Trying to find common ground even in disagreement? Maybe, just maybe, if we listened without trying to win some type of rivalry, we might find that Democrats have a point when it comes to health care, or we maybe would find that Republicans have a point when it comes to school choice or a number of other issues. But you got to listen. But you got to approach them with humility, not like you get everything right. Because we've all held, and we talked about this the week before last, we've all held opinions very tightly, and then hopefully we've realized, maybe some of us haven't, and then we've realized, man, I was wrong. And so this doesn't mean that we never speak with confidence, especially when we're speaking on things that the Bible has stated clearly, but it does mean that as as we try to interpret the Bible and, and apply the gospel in the public square, that we do so with the understanding that we could get it wrong too. And that we probably need to listen to other people to help us get it better. I can guarantee you, and you may not agree with me and and it is what it is. I can guarantee you that if you're a Democrat, there's a Christian Republican that has something to teach you. If you're a Christian, that's a Republican, there's a Democrat out there maybe within your congregation, maybe living down the street, maybe at the church across the street or across town, that's getting something better than you are. None of us get it perfect. None of our cultures or churches uh, or our traditions get it perfect. We've got to be able to listen in order to learn. But are we willing to do that? You see, our pride and our self-seeking prevent us from fully loving our brothers and sisters. These rivalries that we perpetuate in the public square hamper or replace our search for truth and love through Christ. We can't always be defending ourselves if we really think we're lifting up Christ. We can't always be promoting our point of view as uh, right and be focused on that and at the same time glorifying Christ. Again, this doesn't mean that we don't state what we believe, but it's about how we state it and what our objective is and how we approach others. Because one thing I know from experience, and many of you have felt it, rivalry consumes us, man. Rivalry takes away from our primary objectives. It becomes the primary objective. And the reason for that is that the ego is never satisfied. It always has something to prove 
because it actually can't because it can't actually or fully justify us. Our ego tries to justify us and it's never satisfied because it can't justify us. And we know it. We're broken. Our ego doesn't want to admit it. Our ideological tribe doesn't want to admit it, but it will go on and on tearing down others to prove something that it can never prove. It keeps on telling us we're better, but it's never fulfilled because we're not better. Think of all the silly things we do out of a sense of rivalry. Out of out of out of competition with other Christians. A competition to show that we're superior within the church. Yes, certain ideas are better than other ideas. Certain ideas better align with the gospel than other ideas. But we're prone to really focus in on making ourselves better than actually what the truth is and how that truth can be expressed with compassion and humility. Who are your rivals? And how can you treat them more compassionately in the public square? What is it that God is trying to get you to learn from them? It's worth considering. I'll be back on the Church Politics Podcast. And I am back on the Church Politics Podcast. This is Justin Gibney, the president of the Ann Campaign. Well, I was cruising the uh, Internet or probably just on Twitter uh, last week, and I ran into an article from Abigail Schreier. Um, she, she's a writer that I follow somewhat. Uh, she has a substack called The Truth Fairy, and she posted what I found to be a pretty interesting article last week. And the article was entitled, I Don't Want American Kids. I Don't Want American Kids. Hmm. Well, just so you know, Abigail Schreier is an Oxford and Yale law educated uh, journalist. She's an award winning journalist. She is probably best known for uh, her best selling book, which was called Irreversible Damage, uh, the transgender craze seducing our daughters. And I think that book was banned or. Almost banned or something like that on Amazon for a while, but it was there was some controversy around it, Uh, regardless of where you fall on that issue, it is worth reading. Uh, and again, that's uh, irreversible damage. But in this uh, in this Substack article that she wrote, um, she starts off the conversation again. This is, is called, interestingly, I don't want American kids. But she starts the conversation off talking about how a lot of her friends are sending their kids to Japanese, French and Spanish immersion schools. Right. These are schools where basically. The, the language that's being used is not English. Uh, and so they're kind of being, you know, they're, they're kind of being brought into a, another culture. OK, now she explains that a lot of people would say, well, you know, we want them to, you know, this is, you know, globalism is around here. We want our ki- we want our kids to learn different languages and things of that nature. So that's what most people say is the reason. But she goes uh, on to say why she doesn't. She suspects that's not really the main reason. Right. She suspects that they don't want to raise necessarily raise Japanese kids. She suspects that they want to they want their kids to be a whole lot less American. Right. So they're, they're running from kind of parts of American culture that a lot of Americans today 
are having trouble with American culture and how and the impacts that it might have on their children. And she kind of supports this with the work of, of uh, Leonard uh, Sachs. Leonard Sachs is an MIT educated physician and best-selling parenting book. And Sachs believes that America is doing a very poor job of raising its children. And he has some very uh, some 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 deep things to say about that. OK, so so Sachs, Sachs starts off by saying this. He says that American parents are not authorities in their own households and they don't enforce even basic behavioral standards with their children. He says that 50 years ago, boys wanted to be men, but today many men want to be boys. And he says that they are many American men who want nothing more than to sit with their 12 year old son and play Call of Duty in games like that. They have no clue of the role of the father. They just want to give their kids a good time. Hmm. I mean, I know some guys that like to play Call of Duty. Certainly you wouldn't want that to be the only thing that you do with your son. So I guess I get his point. But he goes on to say this. He said, being American born and raised to American parents is now a major risk factor for bad outcomes. He says that being American born and raised to American parents is a major risk factor for anxiety, depression, disengagement from school, non-suicidal self-injury, and many other bad outcomes. Being children of immigrants and not speaking English at home now predicts good outcomes. Now, he gives he gives some data for that. And I'm not going to go through all the data, but he, he does support this with data. But he's basically and what the data is basically saying that there's a reverse, whereas being an immigrant child, you know, would, would have some negative outcomes. Now that's reversed. Where being an American child where you speak English in the home is now having worse outcomes than, you know, uh, new immigrants. All right. He says he says this, too. He says that America has become a culture of disrespect. America has been a, become a culture of disrespect and English a primary vector. Every cultural medium, your kids favorite webisodes on YouTube or Disney Plus promotes to children the notion that parents are foolish and inept and that it's an, and, and that it's admirable cool and smart for kids to dismiss, deride, and countermand their parents. This, he believes, lies at the heart of the mental health crisis among the rising generation. Parents can't guide you or make you feel safe if you doubt their authority. Yes, there are uh, any number of things that may threaten an adolescent's well-being, and this is true in every culture. The difference is an American kid in a culture that disparages parental authority doubts her parents can do anything to stop or contain the harm. And if her parents can't, how can she? Now, I'll be honest with you. I'm in no position to say whether this is any of this stuff is the cause of mental illness and all the things that we're seeing. I, I don't want to play around with that because I, I really don't know. Um, I looked at the data and uh, all that, but I'm not in a position to uh, endorse what he's saying about that. But I have made some observations and I have paid attention to what my kids are watching uh, on Disney Plus or what they're just watching on their screens in general. 
And it's hard to deny that in many cases there is this common theme. There's this common theme that your parents are in the way of self-actualization. Your parents are in the way of you having fun. Your parents are in the way of you being yourself. Your parents are in the way of you doing what you really want to do. And they don't really know what they're talking about. In, in, in growing up and becoming more, you have to overcome your parents. Now, that's not every uh, show that I, I've seen. And, and I try to turn stuff off that that just is just going so hard on that theme. But you do see that theme. And in general, and I, man, am I sounding like my parents? Is, is And even saying that, am I kind of proving his point? I don't know. But the culture of disrespect part is real, too. Um, I wish Chris was on today because we not too long ago had a conversation about how, you know, a lot of times in, in secular society, they've done a lot to take away uh, the position of clergy, right, to, to take away kind of the respect that they had and, and how they're honored. But in places like Atlanta and Chicago, when something goes wrong, they want to go to the clergy and say, hey, can you help us? But in secular society, in many aspects, they've lost that respect. But then they find they need the benefit of the res- that, that respect. So I do I do see these two things at play. And it is something that as a parent does worry me about American culture, about the just lack of honoring parents, about these experts in one field or another feeling like they really should have more say about what happens to kids or whatever than the parents do. I do think that's a part of our culture. And I do think that's something that worries me. Now, the rest of it, I can't say that I, I agree or, or whatever with Sachs. I don't know enough to agree with all his conclusions. But I do think it's something that we have to consider. Like, how do you, for those of you who have kids or those of you who want to have kids, how do you maintain that level of authority? Because the level of authority isn't just to lord over your kids. And I think this is something interesting Sachs point out. The level of authority is to be able to reassure your kids as well, to let your kids know that you can protect them, to let your kids know that what you're telling them is actually in their best interest. Right. So it's not just about beating them down and not sparing the rod. It's about being able to reassure them and bring peace to them in situations that they are too young to understand. But if we lose that authority, if that authority goes to something outside of the household, that we can, don't control, that, that that's values are skewed, then we are placed in a very tough position with our children. And it's hard to say, and, and I'm part of this uh, uh, trend too, it's hard to say that a lot of the folks that are leaving the public schools and going to private schools, and we're not necessarily advocating any of that stuff, are responding to some of the problems within American culture. And and in many instances, when there's a problem in in how folks are educated or the the messaging that's coming in education, it's going to have an impact on culture. It's going to have a major impact on culture. And so a lot of people, for better or worse, are trying to avoid that impact, at least when it comes to their children, because we as adults can disagree. We can have a lot of different conversations and come to different conclusions and walk away and say, you know what, we can agree to disagree. But it's very different when you come to my 
child that's in an early developmental stage and an important developmental stage, and you're drawing conclusions that are completely different than I, you know, that than, than I believe, and actually trying to take away some of the authority that the parent has. Now, we can obviously take this to the extreme. We can, obvi- you know, we can take it so far as to almost act like, well, man, you send your kids to these schools and they're just, you know, they're just uh, grooming. And all. that's not where I'm taking it right now. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that there are certain things within the culture, whether it become talks about respect for parents or where authority lies. Then I think there's there's reason to have some concern about it. I would love to hear what y'all have to say about this issue. And, and you can go to our Patreon, patreon.com uh, uh, slash church politics and, and tell us what you think about this. Is this something that people worry about? Do you want your kids to be American? Meaning, do you want your kids to embrace American culture, popular culture as it is now? Or are you somebody that's saying, nah, bro, that's not a healthy culture. There may be some things that I appreciate, but it's going in a direction that maybe I can, you know, I can deal with, but I don't necessarily want my kids to deal with at this stage. I think those are fair questions to ask. I think as a parent, you have to be asking those questions. You have to be vigilant. Now, again, this is not about going overboard and acting like they're about to take your kid to a concentration camp and all that stuff. That's not what we're talking about. But we can have a reasonable conversation about ways in which the culture take away or undermine, maybe that's a better word, undermine the authority of parents. Are there narratives in what they're watching? Are there narratives in what they're listening to that's trying to place the authority in other places? And for those of you who have been listening to the Ann campaign for any amount of time, you know that I I think family is very important. I think family is where education starts. I think uh, parents should have a major say in things that happen with their children's education and anything that abridges that. I have a major problem with it. Anything that uh, tries to 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 change the family in ways that just aren't healthy. I have a major problem with it. And I've said that about, you know, groups who we may uh, 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 partner with when it comes to social justice. But when you start talking about family and, 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 and adding to the breakdown of family, then we got a problem. We're going to have to address it. But again, check out this article. As always, any article that we talk about on here, we're going to post in the show notes. So go ahead and read it for yourself. I mean, I think it's, it's something worth talking about. And also something that I've worried about myself. I'll be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the Ann Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the Ann Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The Ann Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement that we publish with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. 
So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. Back on the Church Politics Podcast. Last week, uh, y'all might have heard that uh, President Joe Biden, um, and it was a pretty big controversy, folks are still talking about it. President Joe Biden called uh, MAGA Republicans, and that's something that they've kind of branded for the midterms. MAGA Republicans make America great again, Republicans, Trump supporters. He branded MAGA Republicans as semi-fascist. Semi-fascist. Um, and fascism is is a word that we hear thrown around a lot. Uh, you know, it, it's something that's used very loosely. Uh, you heard people saying that when we were required to wear masks, that, you know, the United States was turning into a fascist country. Anything that happens. I mean, even with the uh, even with the uh, Dobbs decision, the overturning of Roe versus Wade is we're now you know coming into a fascist state. Uh, and so you hear it, it thrown around quite a bit these days. And I wanted to take an opportunity to to kind of explain what fascism really is, uh, because a lot of times a word can lose its meaning because it's used, misused, used out of context or just, again, used too loosely. So I, want, I wanted to kind of dig in just for a little bit. I'm not going to go too deep into it, but I wanted to dig in just so folks know what fascism really is when you hear uh, these terms being thrown around by both sides every time something happens that they don't like. So fascism, it does have a technical uh, definition, right? Fascism is basically a social or political movement that generally involves uh, far-right nationalism, right? So it's a far-right nationalist political movement, if if we're going to use the more technical definition. Uh, it's authoritarian. Uh, it's going to oppress opposition. Uh, it's not going to let you say whatever you want to say. It's not going to let you uh, write an article that disagrees with it. Um, it opposes liberalism, right, which is, you know, kind of the liberty, letting people do what they want to do, think what they want to think within, you know, a certain framework. It opposes and it really opposes democracy in general. It's not really about what the people want. It's about what those in power want. Okay, Um, the individual when it comes to the individual in a fascist state, their speech, their other modes of expression, their rights are subordinate to the state. Right. The nation and the rebirth of the nation are always touted. Right. We're about the nation, not necessarily about individuals. We're about the nation. And so if an individual or a group falls outside of our con of our concept of what the nation should be or about of our concept of what the identity of the nation should be, they get thrown in jail. They get silenced. They get pushed off. And if worse comes to worse, they get killed. All right. That has happened in fascist states. The other thing you hear a lot of uh, because it's very anti-Marxist, right? So you you would hear a lot of um, talk about economic self-sufficiency, right? So that's one of the main things. A lot of fascism is going to hold up this economic self-sufficiency. Okay, so that's generally what when you when you hear fascist, you know, coming out of World War One, and then we see it in World War Two. When you hear fascist, 
That's really what it, it means. OK. And when you think fascist, you're thinking of folks like, you know, uh, the Italian Benito Mussolini. You're thinking of Hitler. You're thinking of the Nazis. This is this is really where fascism was real, and the state was a fascist state uh, in in those um, instances. But as I said, it's used a lot more loosely. And so when a lot of people say fascist today, what they're really talking about is a bully, right? They're talking about a leader, or they're talking about a group that tries to bully others into accepting their beliefs, doesn't want other doesn't want people to have liberty, doesn't want people to to do, you know, what it is that they that their conscience tells them to do. They want them to follow the state based off what this group says the state is or the state should be. Okay? And so that's what fascist is. And so I think that makes us ask the question, should Biden have called MAGA Republicans semi-fascist. And and the word semi-fascist is is interesting too because it almost it allows you to call someone fascist but then say, "Well, I didn't call them fascist, I called them semi-fascist." Right? It, it has the same impact as calling them fascist, but you can kind of get out uh by saying, "I didn't completely call them fascist." But let me start here. Because when you talk about MAGA Republicans, you're talking about supporters of Donald Trump. I think we got to start with Trump and folks may disagree, uh, but I believe that Trump, if given the opportunity, would be a lot more authoritarian. Uh, you can see this in how he handled January 6th. You can see this in how he responds to law, to the law, to to rules. He wants to be able to do his own thing. Uh, I do not think that Donald Trump has any sort of respect for democracy or even um that kind of, you know, uh, uh, that original sense of what what liberalism is. I don't think he has any I don't think he puts any value on that. In fact, I think the difference between him and a lot of even some of the folks who are kind of following behind him is that I think he would watch this democracy burn if it meant that he got to stay in power. I have, I've seen nothing to the contrary. So in as much as the leader would be open to that, I do think Trump would be open to that. January 6th shows us that there are some Republicans uh, and some MAGA folks that would do what they had to do to impose their will, regardless of what the poll, what the uh, voters had to say. Regardless of what the election had to say, they're just not going to believe it. They want to do their thing. That shows a somewhat fascist tendency. But again, we have to go back to the question, should the president of the United States use that kind of language and use it somewhat broadly. I mean, um, I think maybe there were some qualifiers put out, you know, the next day or something like that. But I think we do have to be very careful about labeling almost half the country uh, semi-fascist. I think Biden has to decide what he wants to be. There are ways to critique. There are ways to even bitingly critique even piercingly critique certain groups without using what I think is more provocative. I think that language is more provocative than kind of provative or helpful. I think there's a better way to say it. The other thing that we have to look at, too, is if you really think there's this major threat to democracy, and I think there is a threat to democracy to some extent, then as the president of the United States, shouldn't you be saying something to 
these Democrats who are actually supporting MAGA Republicans in some of these races because that's who they want to go against, which also gives these MAGA Republicans the opportunity to actually win the primary and have a chance to win the general election. Do you believe, and uh, Ross Douthat had a pretty good article about this uh, Sunday, do you believe that there's a real threat to democracy or do you just want to use it as leverage in the midterms? Because when you talk about it like that and we look at the actions of some, you know, some of the Democratic organizations who are supporting MAGA Republicans for their own interests, it's hard to say that you really believe that it's the type of threat that you say it is or else you wouldn't be playing with it. You wouldn't be playing with the language. So it's hard. Again, it's hard for me to say that I truly believe Donald Trump is not a fascist or wouldn't take the opportunity to be an authoritarian and uh, to make the state bigger than it should be um, based on his actions. I, I can't say that based on the actions of some of his supporters. I, I can't uh, go on record saying that I, I don't think that they have some of those tendencies. However, I would not broad. I would not advise anyone to broadly uh, put that label on a large group of Americans, because I think there are still a lot of Americans who uh, value whether they voted for Trump or not, who do have a value of our elections, who do have some value of democracy in the system. And so we just have to be careful with that. Again, I think using the word semi-fascist is uh, clever to some extent, but not necessarily hopeful. Uh, and, and let's let's find artful ways to say what needs to be said. Not to withhold the truth, because for us to uh, to not say what needs to be said or, or to put on kid gloves when there's a serious problem out there is not helpful. But there's still a way to go about it uh, if we th think through it a little harder to make sure that we're being accurate, that we're not being provocative, but we're addressing what needs to be addressed. As always, man, y'all know what it is. We really appreciate y'all on the Church Politics Podcast. Uh, we would not be able to do this without you. So I would just encourage all y'all to keep supporting the AND campaign. You don't, you don't have to give us a dollar. If you have a dollar, please give it to us. But you don't have to give us a dollar. If you would just share this with people at your church, you share this with people in your, you know, your uh, Bible study groups and things like that, we would appreciate it. The way that we've gotten to have tens of thousands of listeners is, is really through word of mouth. And so we appreciate that. Uh, if you can support us, hey, join the movement and do that. But we want you to be a part of this and not just listening to what we're talking about. The AND campaign is a movement. We need you. Even if you feel homeless, even if you feel like you don't fit into uh, this political moment, that's not a bad thing. You're not alone. Join us. As always, AND camp, there is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ankin. Somebody say kingdom. Kingdom. Oh, Lord. I say kingdom. Kingdom.